I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, a quick note. This episode contains discussion of sexual abuse and violence. Please take care while listening. A little while ago, I was deep down an internet rabbit hole. It was one of those late nights where maybe you're supposed to be working on something else but some old memory or mystery surfaces in your mind. You start Googling around, but instead of getting a simple answer to your question, you just stumble on new ones. That's what happened to me when I found this corporate video. In just three days and an evening, you can alter what's possible for you and your life. Let me describe it. This woman with blonde hair and a black pantsuit stands in front of an off-white background. Her hair is in a blowout bob, Her makeup is professional, a look I'd describe as office HR manager. The whole thing is very generic and 90s looking. There are jump cuts and the sound is funky at times, which just adds to the hollow vibe. You'll find the constraints of the past disappear. Your view of life, your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions shift. And the change is immediate, dramatic, and without effort. It is a breakthrough. It's a video for a program called Landmark. Some of you might have heard of it. It's a multi-day seminar that, she tells you in the video, can help solve your problems, your relationships, your self-destructive patterns, your view on life. The technology of the Landmark Forum allows for extraordinary breakthroughs in a very short period of time. You can bring about a positive and permanent shift in the quality of your life. The thing about this video and the sales pitch in it is that millions of people have taken these courses. They're offered all over the world. And a lot of people have said that it worked, that it truly transformed them. But others have said it was perhaps the strangest experience of their lives. Irresponsible, dangerous, some people have called it. I'm Kelly Loudenberg, and I make documentaries. A lot of my work is focused on different subcultures, issues of systemic injustice, and forms of psychological coercion, a lot of the gray areas of human nature. The story I'm about to tell you is about a group that for 50 years has offered promises of profound personal breakthroughs. Some say that what takes years of therapy to do, this program can do in a weekend. Their methods sound dramatic, but incredibly efficient. They put you in a room with somewhere around 150 strangers for three days, and then through group exercises and direct confrontation, push your psychological boundaries until you break down 
and share your most intimate secrets, fears, and desires. And then it all builds to this moment where you experience a profound shift in the way you see reality. What happens on those landmark weekends, the experience in the room and its underlying philosophy comes from a surreal history that is anything but hollow or bland. You people think you have your shit together, but you're a bunch of assholes. While there are plenty of personal development seminars you can sign up for, if you have the money, Landmark has always struck me as different, novel. For one, I know people whose lives have been changed, smart, savvy people who feel they've been transformed. But I've also heard other people say the experience really messed with them, left them with more questions than answers. And I found that divide pretty unnerving. For the past half century, some version of this program has been present for anyone hoping to recreate themselves. And now, its ideas have become so pervasive that we don't even notice them. They're all around us, part of our cultural water supply. I'm going to tell you the story of this organization, its history, and the man responsible for its philosophy. From Pineapple Street Studios, it's the 11th. This month, the Beige Room. Over the years, Americans have tried everything from Scientology to psychoanalysis to help them feel better about themselves. I have several things to clear up. One, I'd like to lose about 18 pounds. And the second one is my real fear of physical activity. Students are insulted out of their old attitudes. They examine their own lives and emotions. They are told what to think about. And for that privilege, they pay 200 bucks. I'd like to participate in life more. Hey. Is this Kelly? Hey. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing real good. Man, it's been forever. This is Peter, my ex-ex-boyfriend from back in the day. How have you been? You're, so you're in L.A.? Peter lives in New York. That's where we met. When we met, you were 21. Oh, my God. I was so young. <laughs> it's, been, it's been quite a few years. We're both married now to other people. We have kids. We've settled down a bit. But back in the early 2000s, we were wanderers. He was into electronic music and psychedelics. I wanted to document fringe subcultures and people living off the grid. We once took an epic cross-country road trip for my research. We met Trappist monks in Tennessee and eco-communities in Arizona. And you had us like going, remember that like sustainable group that we went in the middle of the desert out yeah. in nowhere? I remember. I made a wow. film about them. That's right. You did. And uh, then they showed us that part of the earth that was like a dug out by the army, that those people put the yes. mirror inside. And I made a film on them, too. They were looking at the moon with that mirror. That's right. Oh, that huge thing. Yeah. But now, 15 years later, there's one group I was introduced to that I haven't been able to stop thinking about one I've never been able to make sense of, which is why I called Peter for the first time in over a decade. It's a group he was into, 
one that he discovered, not in some desert commune or remote mountain range, but right in the heart of New York City. And it's going to be a blast from the past. Okay. Um, I was like, talk to somebody who had just done the landmark for him. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. One Friday, back when we were dating, Peter told me he'd be busy for the next few days. He was going to something called the Landmark Forum. It's like going into a uh, psychoanalysis session, but in a group setting in a very accelerated rate. That's the best way I could describe it. When Peter came back after the weekend, he told me what happened inside those rooms. So the thing about Landmark is that it's totally set up like a corporate seminar. You have to show up like on time at like eight o'clock in the morning. And they're at like hotels or corporate training centers. It's usually like windowless, like ballrooms because they don't want you to be distracted by outside forces. You purposely sit in uncomfortable chairs because they want you to feel like stressed and sleep deprived and a little bit like uncomfortable because they say it kind of opens you up. And then you're there till like nine o'clock at night every day for three days. So by the end of it, you're just exhausted. The weekend starts with group sharing, your wants, your desires, your hangups. The trainers push you to articulate those things, to question them. Then there's an escalation. Group exercise is meant to lead to a sort of climax. There's like an exercise, I think it's called the fear exercise, where everybody is supposed to summon their greatest fear, like psychologically in their head and try and like be in it. And you basically see like a room of people like convulsing and crying and like sort of manifesting their fears in their own ways. There was a few people that got up after like the first hour because they give you a little taste of what you're about to embark on. And then they say to you, if you don't feel like you can handle this, we won't judge you. I just remember being in that room and thinking, okay, this is pretty freaked out. The idea of something akin to group psychoanalysis with a bunch of strangers in a beige conference room weirded me out. It seemed almost religious to me, like the Pentecostal church I grew up going to where people spoke in tongues. But back then, Peter wasn't the only person I knew going to Landmark. Our actor friend Tom also went to a training, as they're called at the World Trade Center in 1999. And so we're in this huge room, hundreds of people, and there was this exercise we were doing that was very focused on silence. It was hundreds of people all together being silent with each other. And, I mean, it might have lasted a half an hour. And people started crying. And it wasn't even just crying. It was like sobbing. It was just this extreme like outpouring of emotion, this like guttural experience that people were having. You could see people like moving in their chairs. I think initially my response to that was like a bit of a judgment. I was like, what's going on with these crazy people? You know, like, why are they crying like this? And then the judgment just sort of went away. It felt like more of like this communal experience, like we were all together and I felt connected to them. And then I started crying. Rocking back and forth in my chair, just crying, crying, crying. And it was this incredible release. And then 
I mean, for me, I'm not like a big crier, but after I cry, I definitely feel a lot better. And I remember that being part of the reaction too, was just like feeling like I had released all of this, like this heavy burden that had been living with me for so long. And suddenly it was, it was gone. Both Tom and Peter remember this kind of shift. Going from thinking, what the hell? To finding something useful and even life-changing about the process. And then there's one more step. When the weekend ends, you're expected to find a friend or a family member or a coworker to bring to your graduation to show them how meaningful the experience was and how they too could register and have a similar experience. I heard other stories about what happened in those rooms. There were direct confrontations where the trainer berated an attendee for something they said or thought. People who were told their view of the world or their life was bullshit. Remember, this was the early to mid-2000s, not the era of self-care, but the era of self-help, when people recommended books like The Secret. The way people talked about Landmark, it seemed like it could almost heal you of whatever your troubles were a one-size-fits-all psychological ointment that nobody could fully explain. I don't think you had any intention of getting into it. Like, I remember you were pretty against it. Do you think I wanted to break up with you after that because of it? <laughs> well, back then, I think you were breaking up with me on a regular basis, so I, I, can't, I can't remember <laughs> if it was one of the catalysts. <laughs> As of September 2021, Landmark claimed that more than 3 million people have participated in its programs, that it has operated in 21 countries and in 115 different cities. Celebrities and filmmakers have gone to Landmark, like Neil Patrick Harris and the author of Fight Club. Some of the world's largest corporations have encouraged employees to attend Landmark training, and in some cases, paid for it paid for their employees to spend three days in a beige room, unlocking whatever it was that needed unlocking deep within them. I started looking beyond my circle to find other people who'd done Landmark, asking friends, searching message boards, and watching testimonials. And the responses ran the gamut. The Landmark Forum is an amazing program I found that literally changed my life. It's about mastery of the art of being a human. But I'm genuinely feeling right now that I'm not fucked up enough to be participating in the Landmark Forum. The way that they develop the program is actually brilliant. They slowly ease you into this um, message that they're trying to convey. What was the secret of these group exercises? How did they work so well to unlock trauma and change? How was it different from going to a therapist or going to confession? One of the fullest accounts I found of a landmark experience was on a blog, elegantly written by a woman named Amy Sari. Her experience was not so positive. My whole thing is to try to stay away from landmark news and stay away from what's happening now with them. Because really, getting back into a lot of these memories is hard. In 2002, Amy was living in Michigan. She was a bit of a bohemian, a seeker someone exploring all different religious and spiritual traditions outside her Catholic upbringing. I was about 
you know, 20, 26, 27 at the time, I had some skills, you know, piano and singing, and I wanted to do some more in my career and write music. And I happened to meet a guy who was around my age and seemed completely charismatic. This guy told Amy he was trying to build a community for artists. It was a project of his. In fact, he had a whole program helping him organize it. Would she be interested in checking it out? Amy said, yeah, sure. He had brought me to a landmark education center. I had no idea what it was. Could you paint the visual picture? How many people are in the room? Is this at a Holiday Inn? Or, like, where was it? Well, my experience was at uh, a landmark center. It was a center owned by Landmark Education. If you are coming in on your first day of the Landmark Forum, you're going to get your name tag, and you go into a a large uh, seminar room with about 100 chairs in it. It's all on one level. It's It's not theater seating. It's all on one level. Beige walls, beige carpet. There is a slightly raised stage with a whiteboard on it, and then a tall director's chair sitting in the middle of it. The leader gives an introduction. And then, Amy says, people all around the room stand up and start sharing their stories. Before, I was, I was this kind of person, and now everything's different. You know, my life is better, my job is better, my marriage is better, all of this. People doing things with their churches their schools. There was a woman who said, oh, I'm going to run for state Congress now. And it was overwhelming to me. People around me in the, in the seminar were actually healing relationships, overcoming their own hangups, sometimes even addictions. There are people who have come out as LGBT in the forum. There have been people who realize that they were in abusive relationships. This is the kind of thing that can happen in a Lemark forum. They have a, a slogan. Everything you want for yourself in your life is available through your participation in the Landmark Forum. When she first saw these things happening, Amy was taken. And so she stuck with Landmark. She did the weekend program. And then she fell in, deep. Landmark had lots of programs she could attend. The programs that I actually did, the Landmark Forum, the Landmark Advanced Course, the Self-Expression and Leadership Program, the Communications Mm. Course, uh, the Advanced Communications Course, and the Introduction Leaders Program. She says she spent more than $1,000 on the courses, money she couldn't quite afford. But she had found a sense of community. And soon, she wanted to become a trainer herself. When I shared with my family what I was doing, they all thought I was crazy. They all thought that I had gone off the deep end. They knew that I was spending money on these programs that I didn't have. I was trying to convince them that I was taking responsibility for my life, where I, I felt cared for. I thought, I thought that this was, you know, an, an institution that actually could care about me. It caused some real tension for a while. Then Amy saw something happen in a course that really put her off. It was during a session around personal narratives. 
The idea that your life is a story you are telling yourself. Okay, so the participant was trying to share about his experience being sexually molested as a young boy. And the leader kept asking him what happened. The participant said, he took advantage of me. The leader was not satisfied. He repeated again, what happened? The participant said again, he took advantage of me. The leader said again, louder, what happened? Take advantage of me is not a what happened. That is interpreted as a story. Did he touch you? Yes. Okay, that is a what happened. Basically, you know, trying to unfold this whole thing. To me, it sounded like he was making a case that touching happened, but abuse did not. And I got so frustrated and angry that I stood up in the middle of the room and demanded the, the handheld mic. The microphone came over. I said, now listen, if this person, if this victim was sitting on a witness stand, none of this in here would be admissible. No one is held to accountability. No one's going to go to jail. And the leader simply said, well, this isn't a courtroom. And that was it. That was the end of the argument. And what we were all left with was, touching happened, abuse did not. We asked Landmark about this interaction, if it was consistent with their philosophy. They told us they would not say that. Quote, we do not know the actual conversation that took place, nor the context in which it happened, but we would not tell someone that they were not abused. When such things are brought up, we recognize and acknowledge that they did happen, including the severity and impact of what happened, unquote. They say they take abuse of any kind extremely seriously and would direct an individual needing help to a healthcare professional. Made me so angry. And it made me think, where is the accountability for people in power? There is none. And there are self-help gurus who see the, you know, the possibility in turning their teachings into a corporate capitalist structure so that they can tell victims that they're responsible for everything and not the people who abused them. The way that it was related to me in Landmark was like, It is all inside you. You are responsible for everything. Something in Amy shifted. She felt like she'd been in a dream and had just woken up. I want my life back. I thought that I had to throw away my life to Landmark in order to gain it. This philosophy, I think, is what got me interested in Landmark, that you are responsible for everything that happens to you in your life, or at the very least, the interpretation of it. On the one hand, it felt freeing, like a way to take control of your circumstances. It can be empowering to separate an event from our reaction to it, to step back from our own emotional hot buttons. This, of course, is key to the concept of Buddhist mindfulness, and it's clear that lots of people have found this helpful. I get that. But on the other hand, 
it sounded risky. Like this philosophy could leave people feeling blamed for things that were maybe out of their control. That so many people were paying so much money to try to understand this, that's what caught my attention. For its part, Landmark says their programs are in no way religious or psychological, and that they're not therapeutic in nature. They say it's not for problems that are best dealt with by psychotherapists or health professionals. Which makes sense, especially given how it all started, and the man responsible for its philosophy. A suave car salesman with a made-up name. That's after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Welcome back, way back actually, to 1971 in San Francisco. Now, the Bay Area's most complete nighttime television report. This is the 10 o'clock news. There is a chance you have heard of Landmark. But if you were around in the 1970s watching the nightly news, it is almost certain that you knew about the group that would go on to become Landmark. The group was called EST, E-S-T. It was one of the many, many groups that were focused on self-actualization. Though, of course, some people used other words to describe similar groups. The cults were very, very big in this period. This is Fred Gardner. He was an alt-weekly reporter in the Bay Area at the time. Remember, the Beatles had gone to the Maharishi, and every lamppost in San Francisco was whitewashed with ads for Scientology and... Krishnamurti, Sri Chinmoy, and various culty groups. All of this was happening in a climate of skepticism around traditional psychology. America had just come out of a very tumultuous period in the 60s. The Vietnam War, political assassinations, police brutality. Systems were broken, and so people were turning inward to try and solve their problems. It was known as the Human Potential Movement. This man is participating in a phenomenon which has swept North America and which may affect our relations with our families, our work associates, and our friends. It's called the Human Potential Movement. 
San Francisco was the breadbasket of this New Age thinking, the Silicon Valley of the South. One person drawn to this modern mecca was a Pennsylvania man who used to sell cars and went door-to-door selling books. His name was originally Jack Rosenberg, but after leaving his wife and four children to cross the country, he changed his name to Werner Erhard. I can't tell you how annoyed I am that I'm going to get enlightened under this damn plastic chandelier. When he first landed in San Francisco, Earhart dove into the kaleidoscopic offerings of Northern California's consciousness scene. From Zen Buddhism to Dale Carnegie to Gestalt therapy, he sampled them all. But he had even bigger dreams. He wanted to break off and do it on his own. And one day, he found himself driving across the Golden Gate Bridge when he had what he later described in his memoir as the revelation that led to Est. The way Est happened was very simple. I had this transformational experience. I had a transformation. Whoever I had been up until that point, I no longer was. Remember, we're coming out of the 60s. Alt-Weekly journalist Fred Gardner again where people were thinking, there are no private solutions. We've really got to change this motherfucker. You know, it's fucked up. And Werner's message was exactly, slickly counter to that. So the first step is to simply acknowledge that we're in a little bit of a rat race. We're stuck in a little bit of a rat race. We go to work because it's time to go to work rather than because there's any great satisfaction in it. We're in our relationships because we're kind of in them and stuck with them rather than the fact that there's an enormous amount of satisfaction. Find your own space. Your pain, your failure is your fault. It's something you're not doing right. Look within yourself for change. Don't look to change the world. Uh, The way that that gets transformed is by beginning to experience life exactly as it is so that you're not making it something you like or something you don't like or something that's good or something that's bad, but simply this is the way it is. In this period, the early 70s, they were introducing what they call the Vitalis dry look. Now that I shampoo more, I use Vitalis to keep my hair in condition. Men who formerly had real long hair were cutting their hair. It wasn't short exactly. You were using a product. You were using Vitalis, but it was the dry look, right? It wasn't greasy kid stuff. These days, heads are turning to Vitalis in more ways than one. Werner, to me, was the personification of the Vitalis dry look, of the of the turning away from the free look toward what we now know as the corporate look. In October 1971, Earhart held the first meeting of what would become EST, Earhart's seminars training. It had a very simple premise. Through a new focus on communication, you achieve more aliveness. You know, I'd gone to UCLA and studied psychology, and and they said, you know, to change your life, you had to spend 10 years on a analyst's couch. You know, that was the only thing then in the 70s. And then suddenly there's this S thing where you can change your life in two weekends. I was like, well, that sounds good. And I loved it. It really did change your life in two weekends. Diane Covington Carter lives in a beautiful home in the mountains of Northern California with her husband, Landon. There's a bed on their porch so they can sleep outside in the summer though they have to leave a window open to retreat inside in case a bear comes to join them. 
Diane and Landon met in an S training 40 years ago. You know, I had a girlfriend at the time and all that stuff. Condominium on the ski slope. You were skiing every lunch hour. Yeah, yeah, skiing every lunch hour. It was a life that anybody would go, oh, that was great. Like, you know, I want that. And I thought, man, I'm not happy. And if I'm not happy now, how am I going to be happy at 40? Landon is tall and lean and athletic. He went to Yale, Harvard Business School, and then joined the Peace Corps. As a younger man, he was a successful ski instructor and property developer in Aspen. He has a flashy smile. He's a charmer. No doubt that he turned heads back on the slopes. But he wasn't happy. And so he started searching for answers. Like thousands of hippies searching for the meaning of life, Landon went to India, picking and choosing what would serve him on his path. Taking from the teachings of gurus and yogis, he wanted an intense version of enlightenment. He wanted to mentally break himself. And when he returned to the States, he wanted something just as intense. That's when he heard about Est. I saw Est as kind of jnana yoga, J-N-A-N-A, jnana yoga, which is using the mind against your own mind. They say it's the most dangerous and it's the most rapid form of, of enlightenment. And I, I went, yeah, most dangerous and fastest. Landon became a trainer with Est, one of the earliest trainers. He agreed to bring me inside those trainings back at the very beginning and to show me the DNA of what would become Landmark. He started by telling me how he'd open the weekend seminar. So the first thing would happen is they'd all be sitting there and I would say, okay, do you agree to follow my instructions? And I would sit up in front. Okay, everybody agrees. So I said, okay, stand up. Everybody stand up. Thank you. Sit down. Sit down. Good. Stand up. Good. Sit down. Good. Stand up. Sit down. Stand up. Thank you. Sit down. Good. Raise your right hand. Good. Thank you. Put your right hand down. Two hours later. Three, hour, three hours later. Four hours later. Stand up. Thank you. Sit down. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. It's just, oh. Every once in a while, somebody would would go, I hate this. I hate, you know. <laughs> okay, thank you. Stand up. And I'd stop it every once in a while. What's going on? I, I'm so tired from doing this. I'm just ex exhausted. All of a sudden, there'd be somebody that'd be going, <laughs> I could do this forever. It's no big deal. And I said, okay, you're out. Everybody could look around, what the hell? What would happen is people would see, oh, you're resisting. You're resisting doing what you're doing. And if you resist, you get tired. Tiredness is a function of resistance. And that was the first kind of thing. And almost everybody kind of got that. So that was just the first day. One of the people in those chairs was Dawn Damas. She'd eventually go on to work for the organization. But when she first heard about EST, she was just another young hippie seeker in Northern California, exploring communes, organic farming, and new ideas. Don remembers being dumbstruck by people's reactions in the training. I'll never forget this because this one woman, not old, not young, probably a mom of something, and you know, she just started laughing. And she just said, nothing matters. It's just nothing. And she was laughing, and she was saying, I get it. I, I really get it. it. Nothing matters. And the trainer said, 
that's it. She got it. The lingo was, that was a big one. I got it. You always said, I got it. And, and so this girl um, it was just laughing and saying, I got it. it, it nothing matters. And, and I guess if, if they can break you enough, you can get to where nothing matters. It's like they can't reconcile that, so you chip away at it. This is Stuart Emery, another early trainer. He has a gourmet coffee business now and lives in San Rafael, a picturesque town in Marin County, outside San Francisco. I get the feeling he did very well for himself. You've got to break down their belief that the world or the government or big corporations are victimizing them or doing them in. You've got to say, this is your narrative. The events that you think are taking place may even be taking place. They may even have happened. But what determines your life, the quality of it, is the meaning you attach to those beliefs that you have. And most of the beliefs that you have are just bullshit. This had a lot of edge in it, you know, and it was designed to push, push, push. Landon Carter, ski instructor turned S-trainer again. He told me that pushing people to their psychological limits often required some trial and error. This meant some very wild exercises, ranging from taking a zip line over a canyon to watching hours-long compilations of pornography clips, an exercise known as sex withholds. I had gone down to the pornography places and gotten all their offcuts. Offcut is the things that they didn't use in the films, but it was still pornography. The whole gamut. People urinating on each other, I mean, elephants fucking, two guys on one with one woman. I had three screens going all at the same time. Then people would stand up and say all the things that they hadn't told anybody. There was this girl. Um, she raised her hand. <laughs> she said that she had put cat food all over herself and let her cats lick it. Don Domus again, young hippie, eventual Est employee. And so they, they said, thank you so much for sharing. That was so brave of you. And I stood up and I said, you have got to be kidding me. She hasn't been brave. She hasn't done anything. And then this crap's all over the, the screens. And, and, and you applaud her for telling us about letting cats liquor all over the place. And I just lost it. One of the major ground rules is everything that's said here stays here. There's no, you do not describe it. You do not to bring it up to another, to that person. Unless they say, what did you think about my sharing or something like that? You do not take it away from here. It's all left here. It made it so that there was nothing you ever did that they didn't do. So don't feel alone and just get over it. I mean, you became privy then to all kinds of intimate information is what, yeah. 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 Just. I mean, because it was safe to say things. And, and, and there was no, and I, it was not my job to say, you know, you got to do this or that, you know, good or bad. Were you ever like, maybe I should call the cops? Well, there was one instance, the level of safety in the space. We had a guy stand up, say his, he was having trouble with relationships with women. And it, and he then shared that he had killed a co-ed, picked her up and killed her and dumped her in the, in the ditch and, and had not ever been caught. And he was stuck with that. I mean, he was tortured. There wasn't anybody in that training that made him wrong for that. 
They all hugged him and I said, I think you need to turn yourself in because otherwise you're just going to be living on this cycle. Did he he turn himself in? As far as I know, yeah. I went back and looked into this story because it just seemed like it couldn't be true. Admitting to murder in a group seminar? But it was true. It actually became national news. The man had studied mathematics at San Francisco State University. In 1976, he enrolled in an EST seminar and midway through the weekend confessed to murdering a UC Berkeley student back in 1963, a woman who had disappeared on the way to class one morning. Her body was found two and a half years later in the mountains of Santa Cruz, and her murder had never been solved. A year and a half after the S training, the man shared the same story with his licensed therapist, who told him they were required by California state law to turn him in if he didn't do it first. He then went to the police and confessed. Werner Erhard told the media he was moved by the man's, quote, courage in honestly and responsibly confronting his past. The thing to remember is, to be an S-trainer, you did not need to be a licensed psychologist. Werner Erhard was not one, of course. And so I asked Landon about the logic behind those sex withholds he'd told me about. Where did you get this idea? Made it up. Wait, the sex withholds you made up? Oh, I don't know. So So, you made this whole curriculum up? Yeah, yeah. Est was a synthesis of Dale Carnegie, Mind Dynamics, Napoleon Hill. What, Buddhism or any any other? Yeah, some of that. Stuart Emery again, one of the founding members of Est. The philosophy of Est was called together from all these different ideas, a sort of cafeteria Catholicism, but for transformation. Werner, I believe, wanted to be recognized as one of the great original minds. So we were wading through the content, looking for the pony in the pile of existential shit, you know. If you create a context for yourself of well-being, then the circumstances in your life reflect that well-being. Even the negative circumstances begin... Werner was very confrontational. Remember, in that time, there was gestalt encounter groups. There's a book called The Pit by... Have you seen that? Read it. You have? Yeah. Brutal. It's crazy. Crazy. The book Landon mentioned, The Pit, is out of print now. It details a particularly unhinged weekend course led by a different group called Mind Dynamics, a group that Erhard reportedly participated in before he created Est. The pit describes many hair-raising scenes of theatrical role-play, some involving props like a cross, a coffin, oxygen bottles, and piano wire. In one exercise, participants deemed dead to their lives were told to stay in the coffin until they realized how much it means to be alive. It's worth noting there actually is some psychological basis to all these intense group activities. Around the time of World War I, a psychiatrist in Vienna named Jacob L. Moreno described a process of encounter in group settings with theatrical elements that produce breakthroughs for his patients. This bled into psychodrama therapy and role play. Even method acting overlaps here. The belief was that the intensity, focus, and atmosphere of group intimacy could create an accelerated experience of personal realizations. So that's part of what Est was drawing on, the group dynamic. But they had other source material, too, they wanted to make their own. 
adapting Scientology auditing for group work. Auditing, where a leader helps people confront moments from their past in order to rid themselves of the pain they cause. In Scientology, this is famously known as going clear. And we thought the whole thing with Scientology wasn't going to end well. But we also thought some of the content was fucking good. Right? We just thought this would be, if you could pull it off, that would be awesome. And we did. We pulled that off. That's why the S-Training was powerful and great theater. And people changed. Est quickly became a known quantity. It spread from the Bay Area to L.A. and then east. Celebrities began to take the training. Cher, Carly Simon, Yoko Ono. Here's actress Valerie Harper thanking Werner Erhard in her Emmy acceptance speech in 1976. And personal, um, personal thanks, uh, very private ones, to someone who's profoundly uh, influenced my life, uh, Werner Erhard. Grammy-winning folk singer John Denver was one of Est's most outspoken evangelists. He wrote a song dedicated to Werner Erhard, a song that became the unofficial Est theme song. Sometimes I wish that I could fly away. David Letterman played a parody of Werner Erhard on Mork and Mindy. I'm having trouble understanding any of this. <laughs> Perhaps you can understand this. Sit down and shut up. (laughs) I had to push it into every arena that we could. It was missionary. We'd hoped that we would be able to get into the Congress. We thought, man, if we could get Est into the Congress, people would start telling each other the truth. There'd be win-win situations. I mean, all that kind of stuff. So, what happened? Where did S go? How come I hear about guys like Tony Robbins all the time, but not Werner Erhard? There were these articles that were coming out, and they were gushing. Journalist Jesse Kornbluth was living in New York at the time, covering the counterculture movement. And it wasn't that I had a contrary opinion, but I saw something. He had said, Werner Erhard had said, I've completed my past. I've taken responsibility for everything. My life is perfect. And, you know, that was like throwing the glove down. It's like, really? No one's perfect. And it was just so narcissistic, so egotistical that I thought, well, the thing to do is a personal profile of Werner. I got a call from a man named Fred Gardner. He was calling me to tell me that he had gone through Werner's trash and he had three boxes of documents that maybe I'd like to fly out to San Francisco and look through. What was in Werner Erhard's trash? And how Est managed to transform into the landmark forum, a multi-million dollar company that uses some of the same fundamentals to help people become whole again. That's in part two of The Beige Room. The Beige Room is reported and produced by me, Kelly Loudenberg, Samantha Culp, and Eric Minnell. Production and research help from Arlena Revelo, Darby Maloney, Janelle Pfeiffer, 
Chloe Persinos, and Kristen Torres. Editing by Leela Day, Joel Lovell, and Darby Maloney. Original music by Jack Long. Mixing by Davey Sumner. Episode art by Jonathan Conda. Visuals and marketing by Grace Chen, Mora Curran, and Hadim Dang. Fact-checking by Francis Carr. Research support by Makiko Holy and Rob Bain. Legal support from Katie Ali Mohammadi at Donaldson Caliph Perez. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson De Rocher. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss Berman. If you'd like to share your experience with Landmark or Est, you can get in touch with us securely via email at thebeigeroom at protonmail.com or by signal at the number 213-306-6172. Again, 213-306-6172. Parts 2 and 3 of The Beige Room are available now. Thanks for listening to The 11th.